So this whole conversation had me thinking about the Johnny Cash song, uh, One Piece at a Time. You guys, Are you guys familiar with that? No. I'm still diving in. I'm, I know this song, but I'm still diving into Johnny Cash. I still got a little bit more to go, two more albums. Basically, the whole premise of the song is a guy who worked for like Cadillac. He was a line worker and he stole parts for to build his own Cadillac, but it took him 25 years to do it. It was just like piecemeal, like stealing pieces here and there. Hero of social. And uh, he called it a psychobilly Cadillac. But it turns out there was a guy, there was a factory worker in China who did that successively over five years. Hell yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, he he stole parts from a factory and built his own car over, over a period of five years. So I'm like thinking like, you know, Nick, you were talking about like that, uh, like an aquifer like purifier or some shit like that some like super bullshit ass like uh proprietary equipment that could be socially beneficial but yet these companies sell them for like tens and hundreds of thousands of dollars imagine someone working at one of those factories and just like taking schematics home and printing piece by piece on their little home 3d printer or you know actually stealing the fucking parts and bringing them home and assembling there and just like putting the uh putting the uh, uh schematics of the ip of how to build this just like on the internet for anyone to do with a with a 3d printer that that's the kind of shit that i want to see yeah exactly and that precisely i could not agree more yeah that's i the, yeah more free time to like make the stuff that you want to make that would be socially beneficial or even just fun because you know what's what's the whole point of living if you're not having a good time so Exactly. And that, my friends, is how we will deconstruct capitalism and build communism one piece at a time. (laughs) Hello, comrades. It's episode 133 of This Machine Kills. I'm Jathan, joined by Ed and producer Jeremy, as always. Your premium episode for this week. And we are joined once again by Nick Chavez, who is a mechanical engineer, um, a Marxist political economist. I'm giving you that 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 credibility. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I, I'm an academic Marxist political economist, so I, I actually have the power to grant those kind of credibilities to people. So I'm I'm giving that to you, Nick. Uh, but we're happy to be joined by Nick again to continue our discussion from the the free episode earlier this week, where we were talking about the kind of political economy of automation. Um, you know, broader context around. Uh, you know, the shift in the service economy, um, you know, secular stagnation, how automation kind of plays into that, you know, kind of given this this groundwork of better understanding how automation is actually operating and its actual outcomes in, you know, in society, in the workplace, in people's lives, in the economy, all of that. Um, and, and we were kind of, we kind of wrapped up that episode with a lot more left to say, Right. There, there's a lot more in terms of not only providing that like descriptive, uh, uh, you know, materialist analysis of current conditions, but as always, we want to try to look look ahead, look in a more normative sense of you know what might technologies like automation uh, look like, you know, in a different world. How might they play into uh, a, a more radical vision of how to organize society. Uh, you know, so much of uh, 
what exists now, you know, so much of what we talk about in TMK, but, you know, especially so much of what exists now in terms of automation is itself a product of capitalism, of course. And so it's designed in such a way so that it can plug into and reproduce capitalism. Uh, you know, this is the fundamental kind of insight of techno politics is that these machineries, um, these technologies are not neutral. They're designed with certain interests, by certain interests, with certain imperatives for certain goals and outcomes, you know, which always opens up that question. How, how much can we actually think about redesigning, redeploying what already exists? And how much do we need to think about uh, you know, radically new different configurations of, of automation in particular, radically new ways of building it, of designing it, of using it, and so on. So I think this is this is where we're going. We want to kind of start our discussion. You know, we'll wrap into it as well. Again, if you haven't read Nick's essay um, in Brooklyn Rail from last year, you got to do it. You got to listen to our episode with Nick from from last year about the essay. But at the end of that essay, um, and in, and 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 near the end of our episode with Nick, you know, we talked about as well, like that question of what would engineering under communism look like, especially since engineering as a profession is, you know, it emerges from capitalism and it has built within it um, kind of capitalist purposes in terms of, you know, increasing the efficiency of production, um, uh, increasing the ability to, you know, increasing the efficiency of exploitation of both uh, relative surplus value and absolute surplus value from workers. Um, and so that, you know, I think linked into these kind of techno-political questions about al alternative forms of automation also is that question of alternative ways of of conceiving and doing engineering so with that kind of laid out there nick thanks for thanks for coming on for part two of this this discussion yeah happy to be here i'm <clears throat> happy to have you know a group a captive audience that'll actually listen to listen to me bloviate about this this is great <laughs> <laughs> we love it we love to listen to you bloviate about mm -hmm. about this <laughs> yeah so i guess i guess the I want to start by latching onto something you said, because I think it's a really critical um, linchpin to conceiving about anything even remotely related to this topic is that, you know, the technology that we have now is uh, fundamentally structured by capital for, for capitalist purposes. Um, any, any post-capitalist society that, uh, that whether we want to describe it as socialism or communism or whatever, uh, it's going to have to be built upon a actual material circumstance that, uh, you know, with means of production that are inherently capitalist. Uh, we can't, uh, I think that there's a tendency to understandably want to come up with like a blueprint for how a communist society would work ahead of time and uh, um, to want to structure society around such a blueprint. Uh, and especially among kind of some of the more technically inclined people who are, who are described themselves as, as communists or socialists of some kind. And it makes sense. Uh, you know, that's how, that's how we do engineering. We, we don't just kind of like haphazardly go into something and then expect it to take shape as it goes. We, we good engineering at least is supposed to have a bit more of a controlled approach to it and uh, with, you know, informed by science and useful mathematical abstractions, things like that. But the, the you know, the, the movement of history and people and, and revolutions and, and people trying to eke out a better life for themselves doesn't, doesn't really operate upon any kind of like blueprint. And this is, 
you know, this is the key insight that made Marx so much better than a lot of his contemporaries is that we have to understand how these things come to fruition based upon, you know, what the world is actually like and how people are responding in their, you know, in, in their limited understanding of things to their surroundings and how this, this real movement comes to affect the present state of things and how that, that real movement can become incapable of installing communism, not how we just, you know, dictate it from a kind of technocratic standpoint. And so I guess we're, that, that idea has to, I think, remain central to any kind of discussion about this topic. So what that means is that we have a bunch of machines that uh, are, like we said, suitable for capitalist purposes, and we want to use them for communist ends to, you know, have like to have a communist society. Uh, in order to do that, you know, we have to kind of use them in a way that they weren't really meant to be used, or they're not they're not structured geographically, you know, around they're not distributed in a way that's amenable to such a thing. So the process of uh, you know, of, I guess the becoming of a communist society is also the process of becoming of the various aspects of society. And I mean, since I'm an engineer, the the thing I'm kind of most qualified to speak on is like the means of production. That's what I, that's what I work with. I mean, there's, you know, the people's relationships to themselves and each other and relationships to material things and relationships to ideas and all that, that all, that all has to, has to change, but it has to be a, a process of like its own imminent unfolding. It can't be it can't be something imposed from the outside. That's not how history functions. So we have to look at machines in their concrete character. And machines are, I guess, if, if we if we take like a random machine, let's let's take like a um, an injection molding machine. Um, so for anyone who doesn't know what an injection molding machine is, it's uh, you get uh, it, it makes plastic components, uh, usually plastic. You uh, you make a mold. It's usually made out of metal. You machine it using usually like a, 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 a like a CNC mill of some kind, a very precise mold. And then plastic is injected into the mold. The mold opens after the plastic is cooled, plastic piece drops out. And then it does this over and over and over again, all day, every day, um, or as much as like the plant stays open. And so uh, we can't make communism just, you know, out of nothing. We have to make it out of these things that are, that are, that are inherently capitalist. And so like an injection molding machine has capitalism kind of built into it in the sense that it's, uh, you know, the entire premise of mass manufacturing is dependent on this idea of um, of having a like a you know a lot of workers uh, operating this thing as quick as possible. You want to maximize output. You want to maximize the amount of surplus value you're getting. Um, there, there's a lot of uh, like I, I think I go into a bit of this in my essay, but I, I don't want to get too in, into it. But yeah, like it's it's an inherently capitalist machine. So what does it mean to use this very capitalist machine for communist ends? Um, we can say at a macro scale level, this machine is is inherently capitalist, but at what point, if, if we start looking at the granularities of how this machine operates, like, is it still capitalist to like every fiber, every molecule of its being? Or is there a point at which it becomes like apolitical? Because I mean, if we look at the, like the math of how like a gear works, for example, like how, how do gears work? We have all sorts of equations that tell you how gears work. Um, if you want to get even more abstract, like the, you know, the math behind like kinematics for uh, describing like linkages inside of a machine gantry or something, you know, that's all... Um, but I, I don't think you can really describe that as inherently capitalist. Like you get to a, a level of like, um, of depth into these machines and their design. That's not really capitalist anymore. And so where's that line? Where does a machine stop being capitalist and start being apolitical? I don't know the answer. Um, it might be, a, it might be a hard line. It might be like a fuzzy gradient. I don't really know. Um, but the idea is, uh, you know, how do we extract that kind of like apolitical nature of a machine and how do we, 
reconstitute a machine as you know politically oriented towards towards communism. Um, that's all very that's all very I guess abstract. That's an extremely abstract way of looking at this. And I'm, you know here I'm talking about the the importance of looking at concrete things as they are, and I'm you know I'm speaking very abstractly here. Uh, very uh, I'll, I'll I'll wave my hands and say dialectics. That's that's my just. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're exactly right here in terms of asking those questions of like, you know, is this thing, you know, this injection molding machine, for example, like, you know, yes, it comes out of, you know, these kind of capitalist conditions, uh, you know, for, you know, designed by capital, um, you know, used within capitalist conditions. But I think it is always a good question to ask, like, is this thing inherently wrapped up? Uh, in, in, you know, a, a specific technopolitics to use the kind of, you know, terminology and, and theory from like Langdon Winner, you know, where we, we talked about this question when we went through, uh, our, you know, book club series on Langdon Winner's autonomous technology, which is, you know, this is something he's also really interested in trying to answer this question of like, you know, these artifacts, these technologies have politics baked into them, but it is also, so, you know, somewhat of an open question depending on the system, depending on the technology or the piece of machinery, if the politics that are baked into its current use and its current existence are um, ossified, if they are so uh, you know, set in stone that you couldn't possibly uh, yeah, use it for something else without without in a sense breaking the thing, whether breaking it in like, you know, a kind of material Luddite sense of, of smashing it and then starting from something else or breaking it in, you know, what like Winner talks about when he talks about like Luddism as epistemology, kind of breaking it in this more like epistemic sense, right? Like breaking uh, our understanding of how this yeah. thing is meant to be used, breaking with uh, an understanding of, the, uh, of how this thing plugs into the world and the worlds in which it kind of constructs around it, whether that is like, you know, all of the other uh, ways that, you know, living labor, human workers kind of plug into the use of this machine. All of the things that we talked about in the last episode around like organizational structures of bureaucracy and administration and management uh, that are, are that maintain this machine for specific purposes. Like, I think that is always the question of, is it a materialist uh, a, a material Luddism of just having to break the thing or an a, a epistemological Luddism of having to break us, of having to break how we understand and relate to this thing um, while also maintaining that thing in and of itself, but, uh, but instead creating kind of new social relations that, that kind of uh, make that thing uh Make make that thing a thing in the world um, to 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 make it even more like weirdly philosophical and abstract. <laughs> so that's I'm I'm glad you brought that that kind of mentality up because that's exactly kind of where I, where I was kind of going with this is like in so for people who aren't uh, who don't work around a lot of machines or whatever or at least don't work in manufacturing um, there's a lot of machines out there that are they're what I would call like kind of single purpose machines they. They, they basically are, they make like one part or they're configured in such a way that they make one part and it's like a huge ordeal to like reconfigure them to make another kind of part. And uh, I mean, that's on purpose because that, you know, capitalism, we have mass manufacturing. I've never heard it framed that way, but I really like how you framed it as like, epi like, ep like epistemically breaking the machine. I mean, not like physically breaking it because if we like, let's say, let's say we, we have a revolution and we have a, 
you know, let's say capitalism is defeated and we have like a global communist society. Let's say, I mean, it's, it's, it's brand new. Like it, it only just finally encircled the globe. Um, the oldest parts of it are like no more than a couple of years old. Most of our productive capacity is going to be like capitalist machines, uh, like, like injection molded machines or whatever, like specific tooling fixtures that are good for one thing. Um, to use those things as intended by their original designers means to you know run them all day every day. You maximize the amount of parts um, that you build on them. Uh, you rationalize the labor of the people operating them. Uh, but if we want to, let's say like an injection molding machine, if we want to epistemically break that injection molder and use it for communism, um, we don't care about getting maximizing the return on you know the, the fixed cost investment of you know the the capex budget is no longer a consideration here. Um, so if we want, we can use this injection molder only for an hour a day once every couple days and then just to because you know if we if we have some kind of plan as to how many of this specific widget we need and uh, this injection molder is configured to make that widget we only need to run it as long like uh, far enough to get us the amount of widgets we need then what's the point of running it further it's just a waste of energy and materials and like people's time you don't because you know someone needs to sit there and hit the go button or whatever or like you know, clean out the all the accumulated pieces of flash that come off of it, and so I think it's important to see it that way um, because we don't we don't have to use them the same way they they were used under capitalism. I think that the other thing is like production. I think would just be vastly ramped down in a communist society. We just don't need to produce as many things. Uh, you know, it's destroying the planet. We uh, you know. There's an artificial need uh, created through advertising for a bunch of shit we just don't need. And so we can, what if instead of having a ton of single purpose machines, we had a bunch of machines that were flexible enough to make different kind of components. They weren't locked into one configuration. Like, um, and I mean, this isn't an alien concept. We already have tons of machines that do that, like a CNC mill or a lathe or a 3D printer or some kind of sintering machine. These all, you can you can feed them an infinite, you know, variety of components and, uh, you know, within the parameters of what it's materially capable of, it'll it'll make those, those components or those things. And so not everything is manufactured that way because it's not the most efficient in terms of time and again, capital expenditure. But um, if we wanted to just have a minimal number of machines that are, you know, operated by enthusiasts or whatever, and, uh, you know, various production orders from different parts of the of the planet, I guess, really, are if they're algorithmically routed to whatever the, the closest multipurpose machine to the point of use of intended point of use of that item is, then, you know, you don't have to have one person sitting there cranking out like a gajillion of the same part, they can make, uh, you know, a handful of part A, and then they move on to their order of part B, and so on. I think, looking at this dichotomy of like multipurpose machines versus single purpose machines, I think they're in kind of like is are two and two poles of an extreme that you can kind of balance. I think that a lot of the single purpose, I mean, in initial communist society would have to use a lot of single purpose machines because that's what we have. Um, but you know, a couple decades down the line, I mean, do we? What do we do with all those? Are do do they just sit there and collect rust? Do we do we smelt them down and use them for something else? Do we throw them off a cliff for fun? I kind of <laughs> like the idea of throwing them off a cliff for fun. Right. Like, like, there Go the go. office space route. Bring them out yeah. to a field and everybody gets a turn breaking it. Yeah, exactly. Pre- precisely that. Yes. So that's kind of like where my head is at in terms of thinking about it. It's still in an abstract sense, but these are kind of the categorical questions that we, it's impossible to answer now. We don't know what the real movement of, of you know history that could yield communism is going to look like. You know where it breaks out is going to uh, be greatly is going to greatly affect what kind of MOP it has access to. You know, I mean, certain countries have a higher ratio of robots to workers. Like I think it's Germany and Japan have the highest ratio, and then like the US and UK have a surprisingly low amount. Um, China has a medium ratio of machines to 
um, workers, at least compared, or at least according to Aaron in his in his book, but the they have like a shit ton of machines like because they also just have a shit ton of people so like that ratio just means like a large number of machines so like let's say we have you know the initial like the the stronghold of the revolution is in the pearl river delta region for instance yeah or and then you know it spreads to the parts of southeast asia that are now seeing a lot of work outsourced to them from the pearl delta river area you know they're going to have the capability to produce a ton of different shit like at least in the initial stages of the revolution and, uh, you know, block certain parts of capitalist logistics as compared to say, like, let's say the stronghold of the revolution breaks out in like rural Appalachia or something, you know, not inconceivable given the area's history, but do they have the same kind of productive capacity there as they do in, you know, uh, Southeast China? No. And so that's going to drastically affect the character of how, you know, a revolution propagates itself, what the revolution is capable of doing both in terms of like, for those within its geographic boundaries and in terms of, you know, further disrupting everything outside its periphery. These are questions that can't be answered now, but are useful for people to start thinking about and maybe concretizing further as we, you know, maybe approach a situation in the future. Future, We've been talking about the limitations that are imposed or the ways in which we'd have to go forward based on how deeply entrenched capitalism may or may not be in, you know, the machinery of, of daily life, but in the political economy of life, social relations that inscribe us, but also just in the literal, like where is more vulnerable to revolt or to pressures or to disrupting you know, the equilibrium for whatever capitalist processes are going on. So I think, you know, when you were speaking about what parts of the world could exert different types of pressure uh, or put different sorts of limits on capitalist production, do you think that there are certain types of technologies that if alternatives could be envisioned along communist and not capitalist lines, they would um, have similar sorts of uh, possibilities for disrupting capitalist production or development or for getting people to, you know, like, you know, challenge or resist the march of capitalism a little bit more effectively? Or does it just come down ultimately to where it ends up breaking at whatever level it is? No, I think, I think that's a fantastic question. I, I wanted to actually go to this topic eventually. So you, you guys are priming me perfectly here. The, I think it's important to not only look at, you know, how machines are distributed geographically in like a purely spatial context, but also it's, it's probably even more important who has access to these machines and who knows how to operate them. Um, you know, it's, so this is where works like uh, Jason Smith's recent book and um, really like the entirety of the EndNotes, you know, journals one through five, um, mostly, I guess, I mean, mostly two, four and uh, five journals like Chuang also are extremely instructive in this. Um, really a lot of the kind of stuff that gets, that's kind of a lot of the ultra left Marxist stuff that, and that's hovering around the kind of the communization kind of uh, milieu really delves into this topic of what, what are the groups of people that are most subjected to the different pressures of capitalism and how does that reflect in militancy? And uh, the, I'm, I'm partial to the argument that, um, you know, for, for better or for worse, uh, we're seeing like a lot of militancy is um, rooted around this kind of notion of surplus population. Um, and again, there's, there's other people who are more uh, qualified to speak on this than me, but I think that 
it's an important concept. When I, when I talked about things like the George Floyd rebellion and, you know, if we look at things like the Arab Spring and really a lot of like the modern revolts, uh, like I said, they don't really happen at the point of production too much. Uh, they tend to happen in uh, outside the point of production. I, you could argue they're in the sphere of reproduction or, you know, things like that. Um, and, w- and when they do go into the workplace, the, these workplaces often are, again, reproductive things like things like schools, like teachers are teachers were really militant. Teachers and nurses in the U.S. were really militant. Um, but then even things like that are kind of more distribution, like, you know, Amazon warehouses, for instance. And so these people uh, in, in, in some ways, some more than others have different access to like ways to stop uh, capitalism or to like to, to throw a wrench in its gears. Um, Jasper Burns in EndNotes 3 has a fantastic essay on um, logistics and counter logistics. Have you guys read that? I have not. I have ages ago, though. Yeah, I've read some of that work around counter logistics, but it's it's been a while. It's been a while. So so, so walk us into it. Um, uh, Yeah, so Jasper, another person you guys might want to have on this show. But um, basically, I mean, it's the under... So it's it's within the whole kind of EndNotes concept of... um, increasing percentage of the population and at least like in North America and Western Europe, that is like surplus population that is, you know, not able to get, I guess like when, when we say superfluous to the needs of capital, it's not like a Malthusian thing. It's, it's important to note that this means like, um, you know, push into types of work that are uh, less and less important to the actual productive process, like the actual manufacturing process, which is like the heart of capital. And so a lot of these people who are surplus population, or in surplus positions, um, you know, many of them have jobs, but they're jobs in industries that are only kept afloat by like state subsidy or just like barely profitable enough. And they're not like tied to production and they're, they would be not really missed if they just kind of went away in terms of, you know, capitalist productive capacity, but very much missed by the people who work in them. Um, a lot of people, th- this includes a lot of white collar workers. It also includes a lot of people who are unemployed and, you know, like dealing drugs and stuff. Like it's a wide category. The point is that like, as more and more people uh, end up in uh, surplus population kind of categories. There's um, there's a lot of ways that people in these groups can block capital um, circulation, but capital at the same time, like because of the logistics revolution that kind of happened after World War II, even though there's more vulnerable points, it's a network that's much more easily adaptable to getting around labor struggle. And Burns argues that like a big part of developing this big logistics network was to get around labor militancy. Because if, you know, if your port's being blockaded, just bring it in through another port and bring it in on trucks over land. Um, you know, those truckers go on strike, um, you know, then move it to a factory domestically or something. I mean, there's, there's a lot of, you usually see the way around, usually you move it to a different factory overseas, but that, that's kind of the idea behind this. So what I'm getting at with all this is, so people like EndNotes argue that, uh, surplus population tends to display the more militancy as compared to people who are directly like working at the point of production in recent years for better or for worse. I argue that that's not particularly a good thing, but it is what it is. I mean, you know, again, the real movement of history. And uh, what do these, you know, do these people have access to the means of production? Um, Usually not really. And so, but the people who do have access, people like uh, machine operators, technicians, engineers, um, are they revolting? Are they not? Um, And in some countries, they do revolt a lot more than in the West. I mean, so the whole point of the Chuang Journal um, which I don't know if you guys have read it, but I, I strongly recommend it. Yeah, I mean their their whole their their focus on China is is like as much as I love the kind of broad ultra left scene, I feel like Chuang is one of the few um, groups in that milieu that kind of remembers that communism is only possible because of the productive capacity created by capitalism or 
did I say that right? Yeah, communism is the only is only possible because capitalism has has made it so technologically, and you need that technical capacity. It's not you, you can't found communism on a bunch of riots. Like you need machines. And a lot of those machines right now are based in China. However, um, as they note in their big economic history of China, and they're they're hinting at in a lot of their recent economic analysis of the Chinese economy, you know, a lot of the you know their the Chinese profit rate is declining. Uh, it's it's the same tendency that you see all over the planet because you know tend- the capital is a global tendency to uh, to secularly stagnate. A lot of those jobs are moving to places like uh, like Southeast Asia and parts of East Africa, but it's it's not like it's a one to one thing. I mean, you know, not every job that was lost in the U.S. and offshore to China, you know, made an entire new job in China. It was, uh, you know, in some ways fewer people. I mean, that were you know replaced because uh, you have all these machines to to replace them. And then the same thing is happening. It's not like all these jobs that are industrial jobs that are leaving China and then you know making Chinese Chinese um, workforces more percentagely. Is that even a word? Uh, the Chinese workforce is becoming more and more, as I understand it, um, uh, like service-based. Kind of the same thing that's happening in the U.S. And so mm-hmm. but then it's not like there's like a shit ton of factories now in Vietnam that are like, it's not like Vietnam and Tanzania and Malaysia are the new China. They're just not. Where are the levers? Who has their hands on them? Are they getting militant? Are they not? Um, if they're getting militant, what are they connecting with other militants, you know, people? Are they not? Um, th- I mean, this is there's there's whole modern bodies of work on this kind of question, and mm-hmm. it doesn't have an easy answer. And it's I think it's a little easy to get pessimistic because sometimes the answer is like no, a lot of this these struggles are outside of the point of production. But on the other hand, that was kind of the uh, uh, you could argue that past revolts kind of were a bit too workerist and a bit too um, too focused on kind of the hegemony of the of the factory worker in a way in terms of like their iconography. So. I don't know. It's a tough question. Um, it's it's easy to get pessimistic about it, but I think it's an important thing to grapple with for communists. Yeah, I mean, I think you've hit on a, a lot here that we can dig into even more. And 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 you're right. I mean, to bring up that question of like where like where is militancy happening, um, and and the need for militancy at these points of production. You know, to to go back to the kind of impetus for for this episode and the discussion is also that question of you know using automation as a case study, but also just talking more broadly about like the what you know Marx would call the forces of production, right? The, these kind of you know not only the the mode of production in terms of like how is production organized, but the means or forces of production in terms of like you know what are the technologies and the structures and organizations of how production is done. And you know that that is something that we are largely talking about is like essentially could the the forces of production as they currently exist be you know let's even say that there was you know militancy um, at the points of production right uh, you know would that would that be enough to then switch this big lever in the factory that's you know it's on capitalism and then I and then I hit this big switch uh, to communism right and then all of a sudden <laughs> the point of production the the mode has changed right I, I I've changed the mode of it from capitalism to communism nothing else has really changed uh, in like a material sense in terms of the machinery or, and and so on you know but it's like is that enough and I I think you know it, it kind of sounds. Uh, silly or flippant in some ways to describe it in uh, in in those terms but i do actually think that like the these are the kinds of questions that like lenin uh and trotsky were like grappling with at the at the the russian revolution of essentially like we have all of this like you know we have like a kind of quasi like 
you know, we have a, we have a large peasant prop population. We have an urban proletarian population. We have kind of the beginnings of, you know, Russia at that time was still pretty, uh, was still a poor, um, and in some ways compared to other parts of Europe, uh, you know, quote unquote backwards, uh, you know, less developed country. But, you know, there was some of the, the kind of capitalist, uh, you know, uh, machinery and factories and means of production. And so there was that question of like, can we just take all of this, you know, mechanical capacity that Marx says, Marx says is necessary for communism to come about is to take advantage of, you know, capitalism's capacity for, for production and accumulation and redirect it towards different ends. Can we just take the factories as they exist and, um, just, just say that, well, now we are communist and we are running this factory as communist. Uh, and, and, you know, there, there's a lot of, you know, I don't want to get too deep into the weeds of these kind of, uh, sec, of these sectarian debates, but, it, but there is a lot of, you know, argument that that was, um, in part, uh, uh, part of the downfall of the Soviet Union early on is that they thought that they could, uh, just, you know, take capitalist machinery and put it towards Soviet ends. Um, but in reality, what, you know, some, some people, some scholars and historians um, have argued is that they just end up reproducing a different form of capitalism um, because the, the, the forces of production are fundamentally capitalist ones. What I think that opens up a broader question of is a, is a kind of chicken and egg uh, question. You know, it's like, where do we start, right? Is it that we start with, uh, you know, do in your thought experiment at, that you laid out at the beginning of the episode around like, okay, let's say we're in like a new communist society. It's just a couple years old, right? Um, and now we're like, how do I use this injection molding uh, machine for different ends? How do I use, you know, this machinery and that machinery uh, for, for, um, communist ends, you know, because I have all of this accumulation of material productive capacity that we've uh, inherited from capitalism. Um, but, but what your thought experiment kind of presumes is that some kind of larger political economic change has already happened, that social relations are already changing um, and reforming away from capitalism towards communism. And so now it's a question of how do I impose those uh, social relations and impose that new political economy on the material uh, capacity of production. Um, but I think there is also uh, the other, the flip side of that is, does that communist society emerge first and foremost from a redesign and redeployment and an epistemic break uh, of the, the, the points of production, the means of production, the forces and modes of production, you know, the, the actual mechanical capacity of making stuff, you know, do we instead need to start with redesigning and redeploying that? And then that, from that, we then kind of create or build the conditions for communism or a communist society? Um, or do you think it's, you know, the other way? Do we first have to start with the social relations and then go and kind of, you know, after the fact, start uh, start re-engineering re, re um, the mechanical capacities? I mean, I think 
you know, uh, the, the obvious uh, uh, kind of dialectical answer is why not both, <laughs> you know, both at once. But, yeah. you know, I think that's, that it's also very difficult to conceive of, of a simultaneous uh, synthesis uh, happening in this kind of transformative way. Like, for better or worse, we do tend to think in terms of like some things flow downstream from other things, right? Like do the social relations flow downstream from the modes of, uh, of production, which in some regards, Marx does argue that, right? He argues that like Absolutely. certain modes of production give you certain forms of society um, rather than the other way around more often than not. Um, so I, you know, I, I'm just curious, I, I don't expect you to have the perfect answer to this. If you, if you did, I mean, I think we'd be living in a different world, yeah. but, but I am curious yeah, I about your, your thinking. I had the answer the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> Damn, Nick, why didn't you tell us? Nobody asked. <laughs> um, no, I, I think that that's exactly the, the right question to ask. And I think that that's like, that's kind of like the fundamental question of like, like Marxism, really. I mean, like, I mean, I, I do think Marx kind of fundamentally saw material um, relations, like material, like material production, as like the, the fundamental driver of, of social forms. But to to get to what you're saying specifically, I think it's if we we kind of had we have two different aspects of this. We have you know changes in the in the productive sphere, um, and then change like a you know broad uh, um, political unrest that has some level of specific definition. Um, and these are kind of, I think that it, it's funny. So if we look at kind of the golden age of worker militancy and like the heyday of communist politics, what's important is that you have um, like, cause right now we have, we have a lot of the beginnings of what you could argue as like a broad societal kind of political movement, vaguely gesturing at a better world. That's, that's kind of what we have with all of these, you know, revolts that we have that are relatively demandless, but like, you know, know that like the system must go as, as it is. Um, these have to coincide with the same kind of fights at the point of production. You, cause when you have fights that are just at the point of production without the kind of broader sociopolitical movement, you know, that's what you have. I mean, I don't, I don't personally see unions as particularly like revolutionary. Um, I mean, they're good at, they can be good at safeguarding worker interests. And I mean, what worker doesn't want their interests safeguarded? Um, but there's a very much a dead end to that. I mean, the, the entire union structure is fundamentally predicated on, you know, a, a business existing in the first place that they can, that their workers are unionized at. Um, there's, you know, there's like syndicalism and all that, that kind of gestures beyond that. But like really, um, without the broader political movement, uh, to link everything together, fights at the point of production by themselves have a very limited horizon. And the horizon is really just like better, you know, mildly better working conditions, but you're still like falling downhill ultimately because capital, you know, stagnates secularly. Um, you can't unionize your way out of a shit economy. And so if a lot, so a lot of the factory struggles in China from the last like 10, 20 years, China has more factory riots and factory strikes, uh, is, as my understanding is than like any other place combined, basically. Um, I mean, part of that's just that they have like a shit ton of people and shit ton of factories, but I mean, they, they don't lack militancy at the point of production there so much. Um, it's just that it never, it, it often doesn't extend, extend beyond like one factory or like a small complex of factories. And uh, they, they get pretty rowdy. I mean, like, you know, people get thrown in jail over this stuff. I mean, like, like the Marxist students at uh, Peking university, they were, you know, I think their leader is like still missing or in jail or something for trying to organize that kind of stuff. And there's the whole JSIC affair and everything. But um, 
they, it doesn't really expand because there's no, it's not like there's a broad social movement to really carry that to, you know, get factories from different cities striking together. Um, some of that is made easier by with like places like Amazon that are like these huge corporations in multiple cities or whatever. It's a bit easier to kind of organize with other militant workers within like the same company. Um, and so, but it, it's, I have yet to see any evidence of that becoming like cross industry, but then at the same time, you know, we, we know the problems with like a broad social movement that's relatively demandless that is really good at like rioting and fucking shit up and like, you know, and by all means, like they should like, you know, this system is terrible. It's got to go. Um, but if there's no influence of that at the point of production with the people who know to work the means of production, that's also going to fizzle out. Like riots are actually f- like extremely effective reform tools because, you know, riots get reforms like they just do. I mean, you know, there's nothing worse than a bunch of people burning down your, you know, my business owners is my private property. And so like, that's, that's how you get demands met, whether, you know, it's, but like riots in the streets and riots in the factory have to go beyond like just being riots. They have to coordinate and into like some kind of movement. And like, let's say, let's say we have both of those kind of occurring simultaneously. Like we have both of those social tendencies playing out militants in both of those fears are uh, they're coordinating with each other. And then let's say you have what we could consider like a, like a, a real revolutionary situation. You have a mass social uprising in say like a big city and uh, um, enough of the people who work in uh, you know, productive uh, businesses in that city are on board enough, you know, the food production infrastructure is on board. Um, then, and you have like the, the, you know, the 21st century Paris commune, uh, like it's like, it's like popping off, it's going. And so that's good. Like you want both of those, those things happening at once, but it's a grow or die situation. Um, you know, if, if you don't, you're very going to quickly become surrounded. And then, you know, things like, like Shanghai and, um, Paris and all that, you know, you get like starved out or you just get defeated militarily. But then, you know, if you, it's not like you have to immediately overnight have world communism, that's impossible. Um, what's important, in my opinion, is not necessarily establishing political control of the whole planet and then like implementing socialism from above or whatever. I'm not, I can't say I'm too sympathetic to that kind of like transitional period mentality. That's a bit of a holdover from the um, 20th century. But I do think that whatever area in which, you know, a revolution happens needs to immediately begin transforming the means of production they have. And this, you, you can't achieve full communism and, you know, you can't have socialism in one country, let alone one city, but it's, it's a continual process that as long as it's continually in motion and growing both geographically and in terms of um, changing the relationships within its boundaries towards what you could consider communal ends, that would be, that's, that's the trajectory I think that needs to happen. Um, during the uh, George Floyd uprising um, in Minneapolis, when the when the precinct was burning, um, some hotel work. I, forget, I read an article about this. I wouldn't. I, I don't know many more details than what I'm going to say here because I forget. But um, a bunch of hotel workers opened up the hotel that they worked at, and you know, obviously, it's against hotel rules to let people sleep there for free. But they continued working the hotel in such a way that homeless people and other people who needed a place to stay um, stayed at the hotel for free. And so that I, I feel like that's obviously not communism, but that kind of contains the rational kernel of communism within it. And that's like when, you know, as capital has like a rational kernel that like self expands, I think that's kind of like the same kind of thing we need. We need a, a rational kernel of communism that has a material basis that grows itself over time. That kind of reminds me of, uh, I remember reading a while ago, there was a bus driver strike in Japan. And instead of the yeah. bus drivers not uh, showing up to work, they just refused to take payment from the passengers, but continue doing their job. Exactly. Yes. Like, this is needed, but you know, we're going to punish the bus companies by not 
by taking away their profit. Exactly. And in isolation, obviously that just, you know, it's, it's tight as shit. It's awesome. But like, it's not, you know, it doesn't really do much by itself, but you know, imagine if like enough people in key industries in one city started doing that. Let's say like all the, the port of Los Angeles or the port of Long Beach, uh, you know, got shut down by the, the dock workers there and all the, all the goods that were coming in, they distributed them to um, all, you know, factories that were also, you know, having strikes and revolting and part of the same movement. And then we're producing um, thing like things like food and other essential goods, you know, for this you know LA area that's like that's like rioting. And then let's say it, it gobbles up the rest of Southern California. You know, you you have like a lot of high tech stuff in that area. High tech, you have a lot of high tech capacity and a lot of food production, but that requires inputs from elsewhere. Um, if if let's say this this revolution, this nascent revolution, is fortunate enough to have enough sway with uh, organs of worker power in uh, in China and uh, you know across the sea uh, they coordinate to uh, stop work there but send goods over to LA and then like vice versa people like you know finished goods in LA are sent over to the the nascent commune in Shenzhen or whatever it's uh, I think it was so Amadeo Bordiga when um, after the Chinese revolution had broken out he suggested that the the right course of action um, I forget where he writes this or whatever, but the correct course of action was for um, China and the USSR to not exist as two separate quote, uh, quote unquote socialist countries, but rather to merge into one block and be jointly administered by you know people and the parties of both regions into one. And I think it's kind of it's kind of that it's it's a process of continual becoming. I mean, you know, it's likely that like wage relations, for example, wouldn't like immediately disappear, but you would have a lot of things. Uh, disappear overnight and then other things slowly start to wither away as it expands that's that's kind of how i conceive of this happening uh it's contingent on a lot of you know historically specific stuff happening but that's that's how i see this unfolding if it were to unfold yeah what you just brought up as well it it calls to mind you know around that time period there were a lot of these uh sino-soviet uh, like propaganda posters that, you know, for listeners, I would just oh, I highly recommend, so cool, yeah. <laughs> yeah, just look up uh, Sino-Soviet posters or Sino-Soviet propaganda. And it's some of the most beautiful uh, kind of socialist, realist, uh, you know, socialist utopia um, artwork. And it really is just this, like, it's oftentimes like, uh, you know, it's, it's all, it's often men, not always, but it's often it's like, a Russian, homoerotic. like yeah, it's, it is. It's so homoerotic. It's like, uh, like a Russian man, uh, and a Chinese man, like two factory workers, two, two members of the proletariat, like joining hands and embrace. Sometimes they're kissing each other. Like, like it, it's, it's a, it's beautiful. I love it. A couple of my really close friends in Australia have some of those posters like framed and hung up in their, uh, in their apartment. Um, and, and they're, they're just so cool, but, but they are, but they do also get it that there was this kind of agitation around that time as well of like, this is what needs to happen, right? It's like, uh, it was essentially also saying that, uh, there needs to be this kind of uh, broad, you know, not a Soviet bloc, but a socialist bloc um, that could pose an even greater threat um, to the the U.S. hegemony and 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 be an even you know a greater kind of bipolar world, which then could could spread further. Uh, but uh, I mean, all that is to say is that I think what you're what you're outlining here is really interesting as well because you know. You're, you're talking about, in, a, in effect, 
um, whether at lar- whether big or small, um, planting the seeds for uh, socialist or communist social relations um, around the world, right? It is that those kind of acts of solidarity, um, those acts of redistribution, uh, whether it's, you know, the hotel workers in Minneapolis opening up rooms, uh, whether it's, you know, the, the, the bus drivers in Japan, you know, giving out free rides, whether it's the thought experiment of, you know, dock workers in Los Angeles, you know, not only taking control of the docks, but then redistributing the goods coming in to other other, you know, other people and, and, and providing support to other striking uh, workers. Like, you know, it, it, all of this is to say that it's, it's about planting these seeds, a, a kind of continual action, um, you know, uh, uh, what, you know, what I think uh, uh, in my kind of limited understanding of Trotsky's idea of permanent revolution uh, is essentially that, right? That revolution is not an event, but it's a process. It's a condition, um, it's something that is continually happening. And even after it happens, it's still happening because you're having to um, keep keep the revolution going. You're having to keep that um, that society, you're having to keep midwifing that society into um, in, into the world and 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 nurturing it to some form of maturation. It's not a singular event, which I think we, uh, radical or ultra leftist, you know, communist, uh, often do get kind of caught up with an idea of an, of an event, of a rapture, of a, of something that is that all at once happens where it's a global, um, change. And that, and, and every day that doesn't happen, it makes us more and more pessimistic, uh, of, of its possibility, right? Which is like, well, that, that's just self-defeating. It's self-defeating, but it is also the case that, um, this is also how capitalism plays out, right? Capitalism is in a mode of permanent revolution. Uh, you know, capitalism is constantly having to plant and replant its seeds. It's constantly having to spread those seeds. It's constantly having to, fight back against, tamp down any resistance to um, capitalist uh, society, subjectivity, production. Um, like capitalism was not an event that happened, uh, you know, back in like 16th century Italy or something, you know. It, it, it's it's something that is itself also in this kind of constant permanent mode of revolution. revolution. Going back, we were talking about the different, you know, uh, the the machinery of capital, uh, you know, the kind of modes of production, the way that capital um, instantiates uh, and inscribes its own kind of techno politics into the machinery. That is also a way that capitalism is doing exactly what we say needs to happen, that we say communism or socialism needs to do, um, is this kind of constant reproduction of itself in every uh, at the at the scale of not only big large things but also small things and um, I want to really uh, I want to just read you know you mentioned endnotes before uh, with what you were talking about in terms of like you know with the the kind of case study of the injection molding machine right like could we take this and make it into 
uh, you know, epistemically break it um, and reconceive of it as part of a different form of social relations, a different form of understanding and being in the world. Um, and and there's a, a paragraph from In Notes Five in the uh, I know exactly what which essay you're talking about, yeah, <laughs> in Air in the in yes, the essay I love Air, that one so much, yeah. which is so good. I I love yeah. that essay. We've talked about on TMK before, but oh, you guys have uh, which, which episode? So, oh, I don't remember. Uh, if, if we didn't do a full episode on it, I don't think, but we have definitely referenced this essay uh, multiple yeah, okay. times throughout. But there's a there's a paragraph in it on page 146 at the top for those playing along at home, um, where they are essentially are you know outlining how capital. Um, is planting these seeds of capitalism and even, you know, small scale uh, widgets. So it starts, what are we to make of the micro components that is use that is useless in abstraction from elaborate global su supply chains, such as, for example, the old IMAX 922-9884 screw? This thing would seem to be completely meaningless outside of the context of a very social valorization process. It is probably not designed primarily with the subordination of workers in mind, but the specificities of its form are intelligible only in the context of global processes of capitalist accumulation. For sure, the screw in general could no doubt be employed to other ends, communist ones, for example. But one does not need to venture far into the concrete construction of any complex contemporary artifact to find relationships between technical parts that are thoroughly shaped by relations between firms in a global marketplace. Yet again, Unabomber Armageddon beckons. So, uh, I mean, what they are essentially saying is that even if we take uh, a, a screw, uh, you know, a screw that was specifically, you know, manufactured for use in a, in a, in an iMac. Um, and that, you know, this screw with its serial number, uh, only can be used in this iMac. You know, we can take this screw and be like, there's, there is nothing inherently capitalist about this screw. The, you know, in notes is arguing is that, Yes, but the screw only makes sense in terms of its uh, as as one component of uh, larger social relationships of of a larger global marketplace of consumer goods within capitalism, um, and you know what what they are uh, arguing there. You know when they say yet again Unabomber Armageddon beckons is I think that they are in part kind of in a very tongue in cheek way arguing that like if we get so caught up in the weeds of saying that like even the screws of an iMac are inherently and intractably capitalist, then then the only outcome of that is to say well, everything must be destroyed. Uh, you know, everything must be destroyed. Uh, and, and in the, the Armageddon that follows from that, uh, we must start from ground zero to build, uh, from year zero, uh, to build a new society, uh, which is like, I think that is actually, you know, I mean, you know, we on Team K absolutely fall into that in a rhetorical sense. You know, we've talked about this before in terms of like, there's rhetorical value in terms of like shifting the Overton window of like, uh, of, of conceiving of the world as thoroughly capitalist, even down to the screws of an iMac. Um, but in a, in a practical sense as well, I think it also gets at what you're saying, um, Nick, that like, 
we on one hand have to have that analysis that 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 even the screws of an iMac are you know uh, fundamentally uh, you know a capitalist technology, but at the same time, like is is rapture is total global immediate revolution therefore the only pathway forward obviously not um if if we adhere to that then we'll get nowhere um instead it becomes i think that question that really tough question we were uh discussing earlier about like okay so how might we start pushing back against this um, how might we start re-engineering or redeploying um, these things that do find their origins in uh, a very specific kind of capitalist condi uh, uh, condition shaped by the interest of capital? Um, how do we start ta taking these things and 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 pushing them towards other other forms of social relations, other forms of understanding and using them. We can escape the kind of uh the the kind of micro component of a screw. And and I, I wanted to ask you, because you've mentioned, you know, like 3D printers. Uh, you know, here you've mentioned it in your essay and in our previous conversations as this kind of technology or some, or, or we can even take something like a, a CNC, metal working devices, you know, these kinds of things that are you know, very malleable, very flexible in their usage, right? This was supposed to be the whole promise of uh, the 3D printer is that it puts the means of production in your hands, on your kitchen table, you know, and this was a lot of the rhetoric. I remember when 3D printers were really big, like, you know, 10 years ago, um, everybody was like, oh, this is this is it. We are democratizing I, I the means of production with 3D <laughs> printers. Um, but, but for some reason, that has never come to pass uh, in any meaningful way, right? Most people that have 3D printers are like, cool, I can download like a blueprint online to create like, like a really like shitty plastic, uh, widget, uh, you know, to like hold my toothbrush or, or something like that. Yeah. Right? <laughs> it's like, so I, I wanted to throw it over to you because I think you have a 3d printer sitting behind you. Yes. I, um, you, I was wondering if you noticed that. Yeah. <laughs> yes, you have a 3d printer sitting behind you. And, and so I, I will, I just wanted to also ask you like, what are some of the uh, kind of material politics of like the 3D printer in terms of like, you know, all that rhetoric around how they, they are going to democratize this while at the same time they are flexible and malleable um, forms of machinery that are that are used for, you know, quick prototyping and stuff like that. But my, my question to all of this is a roundabout way of saying my question is like, what is it that has made something like the 3D printer, um, you know, not not live up to uh, its its promise or its hype? Um, so I, I just want to say that it's this is the first time anyone's asked me to expound on the political economy of 3D printers, and I could this has made my day. No one has ever asked me to do this, and I've been waiting. <laughs> I've been waiting years for someone to ask me to do this. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Thank you, guys. But um, yeah, so I mean, the, the short answer to your question is, first off, they fucking suck. Like, that's like... <laughs> they. I mean, I, I, lo I love 3D printers. I have one behind me. If I showed you my resume, it's stacked with like 3D printer stuff. I've lost count of how many 3D printers I've like used, fixed, you know, maintained, uh, replaced parts on. They... They're not that good. They just like from an engineering standpoint, they, they're extremely useful for like product development because you can prototype a lot of stuff. But even then when you're prototyping, I mean, it, the plastic that's being deposited behaves a lot differently than 
uh, the, the types of materials that other things are made of, whether it's like metal parts, because for obvious reasons, plastic and metal behave very differently. But then also like other plastic parts that are made by other methods like molding. Uh, molding is like the true mass manufacturing plastic method. It's like bar none, the most popular way to do it. And uh, 3D printers just can't compete in terms of uh, precision, like dimensional precision and like fine control over certain things. Um, there's a lot of things they do well. Like I said, I mean, I like the machines. Um, but they just kind of suck. Um, and there's like SLA printers and other types of um, like resin-based printers. They're more precise ge- uh, geometrically, but they also, parts tend to be more delicate, which is like also a problem. Uh, and then they have like variable shrinkage rates for different types of features. So it gets hard to control the size of things. Whereas with like a mill or a lathe, you get a very co- tight control over everything. Um, but the, mo- the more important thing about them that has made this promise not come true is that they're, they're not a mass manufacturing device. They are, um, you can't really make 3D printers like that much more efficient. Like, yeah, I mean, there is ways to make them more efficient. They're more efficient now than they were before. You know, there's ways to make them deposit filament faster and more reliably and all this kind of stuff. The time, if you have a 3D printer, if it takes like, you know, an hour to make one part, it's going to take it really uh, it's going to take it almost two hours to make two parts. You get a little bit of time savings by doing multiple things on one print bed, but you got to hedge your bets about, um, cause if sometimes if you're printing multiple parts at once, uh, if one part fails, the whole batch is gone. So it's a balance between like not losing your whole batch, but then also like maximizing on savings cause your, your heater is not like cooling down in the meantime. And so you can't really be more efficient with a 3d printer. It kind of, it's, it's, it's sort of like a one-to-one, um, in terms of like, time in and productivity out. Whereas like an injection molder, if you have like a, like a multi-cavity mold, you can, you can print like a lot of parts all at once. For instance, there's, there's ways to make other types of machines a lot more um, produce a lot faster. And so under capitalism, they didn't really, I mean, they haven't seen as much widespread adoption outside of like hobbyism and prototyping. Those are like the two main things. Um, there's, there's metal 3d printers called, uh, the sintering machines. Those are cool. They get usage in some like niche medical device stuff, like, uh, like spinal implant, uh, manufacturing. Cause those need to be made out of metal, but you can't like really machine those, but, um, they're, they're, they didn't like upend everything, um, as they were promised to be like in a capitalist sense. And I actually used to work at a place that was trying to do exactly that. Um, it was a startup and it sucked, but, and they failed cause they sucked, but under communism stuff, like, um, the like a 3d printer or like a a sintering machine like just additive manufacturing in general i think that you would be able to find better uses for it because um but it would you kind of have to already have communism or at the very least have much better printers um i mean people are out here like 3d printing guns and stuff and um you know i mean like if you want to make a gun at home like just get a mill it's you're going to be able to make a better gun ultimately you definitely can make things at home with them, but it, the, the kind of production that people do in like a hobbyist sense is very, very, very different than how production works for like mass scale, like societal consumption of goods. Um, it's not just a matter of like volume, although that's a big part of it. There's also a huge amount of consideration that goes into like repeatability and standardization between parts. Cause if they have to fit with other stuff, you know, you have to factor in like, uh, like, ge- like geometric tolerancing of the parts, like 3d printers are just awful for that. Um, you know, and so like it, there's the way that they're deployed is a lot different. But, you know, if you already have a communist society, um, I don't know that not if you don't have as much mass manufacturing happening, you can probably get away with a lot more variability between um, parts that are produced uh, in like a local sense. I, I think the what this hints at here is kind of a an interplay between like, how do you decide whether to produce something like locally in a bunch of different areas all at once with maybe some like 
variations between the localized producers or versus making something in one place and just like a couple places on the globe and then distributing them everywhere and like and using like the pinnacle of mass manufacturing technology you know wrested from capitalism for stuff like screws um screws are one of those things where there's no real good reason in my opinion for everyone to be using like a different screw standard i don't think it'd be too much of like an authoritarian imposition for <laughs> everyone to just use like the existing like iso screw standards i mean i guess people who are used to using like uh, SAE or, uh, you know, the, uh, the ANSI ones probably would be mad. I mean, I work in the U S so like, I'm, I have to use like three different screw systems. It's a pain in the ass, but if we were all just using ISO screws, then sure. Maybe a handful of factories operated by like screw enthusiasts can like just crank out, like screws all day or something. I don't know. Like, and then, um, some things like things like food, I think that generally you'd want to produce most of that locally for a lot of reasons, not always, but a lot of times. Uh, you know, climate permitting, uh, but then some other, you know, a lot of other goods, like for example, like certain microchips, do you like, if you need enough of them, you should probably kind of mass manufacture them, but do you need so many of them that you have to like, you know, have a bunch of like communist factory line operators working in a factory or like laboring in a factory? I don't know. Like this is, this is again, one of those tensions that kind of has to be re- like resolved on a case by case basis. Yeah. I think that that's a good point i often wonder you know we do talk about like what things would remain but also it's like a lot of uh, as we've been talking about like and especially scaled up at the global level a lot of the global supply production system is built along the lines of capitalist exploitation and mass production and just-in-time delivery and all these other logics that don't really make much sense if you are a communist system that has other priorities if you're thinking about what's socially useful right and so it may just very well be that, yeah, I think that a bunch of authoritarian imposition, some standardization would be in need here, you know, yeah. <laughs> so that we don't have a myriad of things. Yeah, um, weird factory Stalinism. You're going to use this screw and you're going to like it. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like having a universal design like that kind of breaks the whole like need for companies to create like proprietary, like I understand like, you know, proprietary technologies for certain things, you know, I coming from the medical field and like spending years, like we're repairing and replacing parts on like equipment that people need for their, like their livelihoods, their fucking independence and having to like wait months for a manufacturer to send me like one screw because I can't get anything from the fucking hardware store, like the specialty screw manufacturer in town to create it because they have this like proprietary patent on this one piece. That's in essence, if we have like a metal filament, like 3d printer, we fucking throw that in the, in the mix and try to make those. But then you get a fucking C and D from, you know, company X, uh, you know, wants to take you to court because you're still, you're still in their proprietary, uh, IP. Exactly. That's and that's 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 one of those things where like capitalism's like inefficiencies goes beyond just like the material sense and goes into like just like the dumb legalisms that we've built around all this you know bullshit. Like I mean, even like let's say we have like a nascent communist communist society. Like immediately, one of the first benefits is that like you know if just you just abolish IP law. I mean, you'd abolish like technically law in general in a, in a sense, but because you're getting rid of the state. But the you know if there's no more IP enforcement there's like, you can just make things without having to deal with all that. I mean, it'd be, it'd be so much simpler if like, you know, if, if plans for some kind of like aquaponic system got like just distributed everywhere in like an area and people were able to now like make that at home, that would, you know, and everyone can sustain themselves a bit more reliably, like, you know, in the time it takes for the, you know, the, the food supply chains to get controlled by the communist revolution. Like 
how's you know that's gonna that's already right there like a big victory and like you know because proprietary goods are not factored anymore i mean just that right there would be huge i mean and like you know no one has to feel bad about pirating anything pirating isn't a thing anymore you just you just it's it's yours it's the info's out there everyone gets to have it yeah, i really think things like wikipedia and like the pirate bay and uh just like torrent sites and everything like are just have this kind of like latent proto-communism in them in that sense like yeah those would be like such great assets like when communism like kicks off I know we're we're running up on time here, and you know I, I think by way of wrapping this up, there there is a a, a, a key thing that a key theme uh, that I think is running throughout our discussion that's worth just making really explicit. You know, it's running all the way up from you know when we're when we're talking about you know in the uh, in, in the free episode, right? We're talking about the kind of ways that um, automation is designed and, and used, uh, whether it's in, you know, in an Amazon warehouse or a McDonald's or just, you know, a factory line, wherever, right? Uh, so much of this is designed around, as you've put it, uh, Nick, you know, it's, it's designed around a kind of rationalization of labor, right? This kind of, uh, you know, keeping people on, you know, managing people, administering people, keeping people in line, while at the same time, you know, rationalizing the the work process uh, in the sense of making, of optimizing it, making it efficient, producing as much stuff as possible, um, keeping it going 24-7 so that you can have continual uh, production and overproduction um, and uh, continual circulation of all those overproduced commodities. You know, that's what, that's what a lot of the you know a lot of machinery a lot of automation a lot of uh the algorithms and software you know whether it's software or hardware a lot of it is organized around around that um and what we're talking about and what you talked about very beautifully at the top of the show um around like the injection molding device right it's like well we don't need to have this thing running all the time we don't need to have it pumping out stuff all the time you know you just run it once a week or you know as needed or whatever and 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 it's fine um and i think part of that what what's baked into that is this idea that if capital, if capital is interested in uh, organizing capitalism as a system, as a mode of production, and a way of 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 living, as forms of social relations, is uh, is essentially interested in um, keeping people no, you know, their nose to the grindstone at all times, right? Like, you know, taking more and more of their time, um, taking more and more of their autonomy away from them. Uh, you know, that that is what you know. Wage slavery as an idea is essentially that, right? You become enslaved to the wage and you become enslaved, uh, you know, a servant to those who pay the wages. Um, and, and therefore at the, the flip side of that, then what we've been describing in terms of like what a communist, uh, you know, social relations and a communist mode of production would not only have these things around like, you know, flexibility, uh, you know, so kind of going against this one use, you know, hyper rationalized mode of production. Um, it would not only be about, uh, you know, socially useful production, which is about like not only producing profits, but also about producing things that, uh, that people, that people actually care about, right? Contributing to human welfare, 
meeting people, it's not only necessities, but also the things that they want, right? Not only what they need, but what they desire, um, you know, but also part of that as well. And, and you know, to, to quote uh, Jahu, who's uh, uh, an old, you know, legendary blogger and, and poster, ship, uh, communist ship poster, right? His, defin- his slogan for the definition of communism was always, communism is free time and nothing else, right? Nothing that, else. <laughs> and that is in itself right it's about giving people more free time and more time to ha- more freedom to to choose how they spend their time uh what they want to spend their time doing and you know building out that slogan of communism is free time and nothing else i do want to quote from uh the very end of an essay by aaron beninov called how to make a pencil um in logic magazine and it's a really really great essay which essentially um lays out you know what would a um a kind of socialist planned economy look like that is motivated towards uh free time this is aaron beninov and so he he writes quote in designing our protocols and our algorithms and our machines it is crucial to remember that the point of this process of social transformation is not only to make work better but to also work less. Too often, socialists have seen work as the highest realization of human freedom. In truth, work will never be an entirely free activity, but in a world no longer beholden to the capitalist growth imperative, advanced technologies can substantially reduce the amount of work demanded of of any individual. With greater free time and available space, all individuals will be able to develop their personalities outside of a worker centric identity. I think this is exactly it. And I think, you know, for, for us going ahead, for our dear listeners moving forward, um, you know, we can and do construct these really complex analyses of the, of capitalism. We construct these really, uh, you know, grand and complex thought experiments and ambitions about what a communist society would look like, how the machinery would look, would work, how the machinery would be designed, how we would relate to that machinery and so on and so forth. But at the end of the day, uh, we cannot stray from that slogan, uh, that communist is free time and nothing else. Everything else must be subordinated to achieving that goal of, 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 of giving people more free time, letting them express themselves uh, and experience life outside of what Aaron calls a worker-centric identity, one that is so um, entrapped by uh, work. And, and all of the unfreedoms that come along with it. I, I could not agree more. I, I agree with that. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that, I always try to, I always like to try to end these episodes with a big, just like, I think it's the teacher in me. It's the, it's the academic lecturer in me where I'm like, I want to end these episodes with a, with just a, a big takeaway, right? Like, let's all wrap it up, synthesize it, summarize it. Uh, and I, yeah, I, I, I think that one is a, is a timeless one that, uh, to, to always remember and, 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 and move forward with, um, as we try to, uh, combat capitalism and bring about the new the new world. Um, so with that, Nick, thank you so much for joining us with a uh, an action packed double header. This has just been a, a fantastic discussion. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. I had a really good time. Wow. 
Thanks for coming on again. Awesome. And I want to thank all of our dear listeners, our comrades, our Patreon subscribers for, uh, you know, well, subscribing on Patreon, getting access to the premium uh, episodes. We always, always appreciate your support in any way that you can provide it. So thank you with that. Um, and with that, I will just leave you with, uh, you know, stick around for next week. More, more exciting episodes to come as always. So until then, later. Adios. See ya. Well, I left Kentucky back in 49 and went to Detroit working on assembly line. The first year they had me putting wheels on Cadillacs. Every day I'd watch them beauties roll by and sometimes I'd hang my head and cry cause I always wanted me one that was long and black. One day I devised myself a plan that should be the envy of most any man. I'd sneak it out of there in the lunchbox in my hand. Now, getting caught meant getting fired, but I figured I'd have it all by the time I retired. I'd have me a car worth at least a hundred grand. I'd get it one piece at a time, and it wouldn't cost me a dime. You'd know it's me when I come through your town. I'm gonna ride around in style, I'm gonna drive everybody wild, cause I'll have the only one there is around. So the very next day when I punched in with my big lunchbox and with help from my friend, I left that day with a lunchbox full of gear. I've never considered myself a thief, but GM wouldn't miss just one little piece, especially if I strung it out over several years. It's machine killed.